Inside the IC is sponsored by Microsoft Federal, the choice for classified missions. Welcome to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. Now your host, Justin Doubleday. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of Inside the IC. We're going to stick on the topic of security clearances today. In our last show, we discussed the Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative with the Defense Counterintelligence and Security Agency. Today, we're going to talk about how it's often difficult and time-consuming to move people with the highest levels of clearance to new projects and agencies, and how maybe the government can improve that. My guests today are Larry Hanauer, the Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, and Greg Torres, the Director of Personnel Security at Booz Allen Hamilton. INSA recently published a white paper on improving security clearance mobility, how to save time and resources, and enhance mission outcomes. Larry and Greg, thanks so much for joining me today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Great to be here. And Larry, just to, to start with you, can you describe why did you conduct the study? What were you trying to find out about personnel mobility here? Sure. So a, an effective personnel mobility process is really important for both government and industry in the in the cleared space. If the security clearance process takes too long or if it deters too many applicants, then then contractors can't provide enough people or the right people to support their government sponsors. Now, the government's made great strides in streamlining the clearance process in recent years, particularly through the, the ongoing Trusted Workforce 2.0 initiative, which I know you've done some reporting on. But a lot of work still remains to be done. Particularly for contractors, personnel mobility is really critical uh, because contractors support multiple projects at multiple agencies simultaneously. Now, it can take anywhere from a few days to several months and sometimes even more just to get an agency to accept as valid a clearance granted by another agency. And so that means that contractors just can't get to work on a new contract in a timely manner, and that hinders companies' ability to perform the work they've been contracted to do. So what INSA wanted to do was to identify the challenges to moving contractors between agencies. And the paper that we wrote uh, provides some really concrete examples of how agencies' processes are bureaucratic and inefficient so that we could propose ways to get contractors to work faster and more more effectively. I should note too, the challenge affects government employees as well, but government employees don't rotate between agencies very often. They might do that every couple of years if they change assignments or that kind of thing. But because contractors support several agencies at the same time, they're constantly moving between agencies and need to access different agencies' systems and facilities. And so the the delays in personnel mobility, the delays in getting their clearances approved to make that move are are really um, a significant hindrance to their work. Got it. Really quickly, can you describe the difference between mobility and reciprocity? Because we've heard a lot about reciprocity, but mobility is kind of a broader concept, right? Yeah, absolutely. Hey, thanks for the question. You know, there is absolutely policy on reciprocity and reciprocity, plainly speaking, is the movement of somebody's security clearance eligibility from one cognizant security authority to another. For example, if somebody had uh, a clearance eligibility with the CIA and we needed to use that on the DOD side, it would be the process by which uh, DOD reviews that and moves that information over to the DOD side. And and their policy that's outlined in Security Executive Agent Directive 7 uh, outlines a timeliness goal of about five days to get that done. And by and large, uh, that seems to work pretty well. The mobility piece is really everything else. Right. The stuff that happens before 
the the move and then after eligibility is moved there's uh, a whole nomination process and indoctrination process and all of that outside of the reciprocity can actually add uh, up to two to five weeks of processing time for people who are likely already sitting in another secure facility. And I mean, we're talking today not not about all clearance holders, but the kind of the the highest cleared folks, top secret SCI, because there are extra requirements that fall kind of outside of just uh, accepting their clearance uh, polygraphs and, and and whatnot for for those folks particularly, right? That's who we're talking about today. Yeah, that's absolutely right. By and large, uh, at least on the National Industrial Security Program, up to the top secret, what they call collateral level, non-SCI. The movement of, the, of those folks is uh, generally happens pretty well. When we can see their eligibility in DOD system of record, for example, we can actually read those people on on day one. So if we hire somebody and they're cleared in the system and they have a contract that requires that level of clearance, they show up uh, to our uh, to our company and we are able to uh, read them on and simply tell the government they're good to go and they can then start local processing or or start right away at work. It is a very different process for SCI, absolutely. Got it. So now that we've kind of set the table here, Larry, what were some of the big takeaways from the report? You had some good recommendations and findings in there. What were some of the top ones people need to know about? Yeah, we, we tried to come up with some really actionable recommendations the DOD and the intelligence community can implement. Uh, and we come up with about a half dozen or so policy changes that um, that the intelligence community and the Defense Department can implement. So one big one is that um, the Defense Department needs to eliminate component-specific reciprocity requirements. So each of DOD's 43 components, which include the military services and the defense agencies, have different processes for granting SCI access even after clearance eligibility is documented in DOD's system of record. And these requirements aren't based on any written guidelines. There's no formal instruction that they that they have to have these different practices. They're based just on longstanding practice, you know, the way things have always been done. But what they end up doing is they end up delaying a contractor's ability to get to work by about two to five weeks, as Greg said, while offering really no security benefits whatsoever. So, so that key recommendation is consistency across the Defense Department's uh, 43 organizations. Um, Second, DOD needs to let contractor firms in-brief their personnel at the SCI level, which is already allowed for top secret access. Um, so right now, a contractor can can indoctrinate their their employees at the top secret level and send them off to work or, or start putting them on t- to work on a contract. But they can't do that at the SCI level. It takes an additional briefing by the government agency. And that just adds an additional several weeks that delays contractors from starting work. So since companies are already able to in-brief their people at the collateral top secret level, we recommend they be given the authority to do the in-briefs at the SCI level as well. Third, we recommend the DOD adjudicate a contractor's SCI access access. At the same time, they adjudicate the contractor's collateral top secret access. The adjudicative standards are virtually the same. Uh, But right now, if you get a top secret clearance, the government adjudicates your access. And then if you later on need access to SCI information, they have to re-adjudicate your access to the same standards a second time. And that's just duplicative and it wastes time. So we recommend that contractors get their SCI access adjudicated at the same time as their collateral clearance. So that way, if and when they need SCI access, it's it's already, the, the, the approvals are already granted. 
the fourth recommendation is that agencies that require full scope or lifestyle polygraphs should allow contractors to begin working if they already have a valid counterintelligence polygraph. The full scope polys can take anywhere from a few months to over a year to schedule. And so they, they just create critical delays in getting people to work. And there's already a shortage of people with polygraphs, and which, which creates real problems in getting the work done. And since the counterintelligence polygraphs really address the most critical security issues, they really should be adequate to allow someone to start working while the agencies work on getting the, the full scope lifestyle polygraph scheduled. The fifth recommendation we made is that industry get access to intelligence communities, uh, the intelligence communities clearance repositories so they can assess whether their personnel are likely to be approved for a clearance. That way you don't waste months uh, processing someone who, you know, as the government just isn't going to get through the process. Uh, and then sixth, and maybe this is even the most important one, we recommend that ODNI and the Defense Department appoint a single official or a single team that can implement standardized personnel mobility procedures across the government. There's really no reason for, for differing procedures from agency to agency to agency or even within agencies. So, um, so promoting consistency and standardization across the government would really make the process a lot simpler and more efficient for both government and industry. Got it. Yeah. And starting with that last one first, I mean, that this is an issue you hear crop up when it comes to, you know, security clearance issues and, and background investigations and just personnel issues uh, across kind of the national security space. There's no one belly button to push necessarily. Uh, there's no one single overseer of these policies. Who has oversight right now? And then did you get any more granular on who might be the person to actually be the one that starts implementing these policies? Greg, maybe start with you. Sure. You know, that, that's a little complicated. I will say at the moment, there are really few policies that we can see regarding mobility. I, I, and I think Larry alluded to this, which is the broader issue of movement, uh, though we do expect that the efforts in Trusted Workforce 2.0 should really create a lot of those policies. The policies that currently exist are really focused around what we talked about before, which is reciprocity, which is just a small part of that. You know, in the case of mobility, agencies have, as Larry said, protocols. Like the, like the ones we talked about a little bit earlier that are about getting someone read onto these classified programs. And the implementation of those protocols are not prohibited by policy, but they're also generally not endorsed by them either in large part. And so, you know, some of the high level policy leads like ODNI and OUSDI, they don't generally dictate or oversee how any of their sub elements implement each function. So because of that, they generally don't have visibility on the differences in both processes and performance outcomes. But to be fair, they also likely don't have the resources to conduct that oversight. This was highlighted in a GAO study of May of 21. And our INSA paper really attempts to assist the agencies by making some of those differences visible to them. And we also have samples of performance data that we are happy to share with the government agencies if they'd like to understand it in more detail. But I think by and large, that's part of the challenge is that most senior level officials and agencies don't get down into the protocols related to how somebody actually does the day to day work. And that's where we're seeing the delays. And Justin, can I jump in here for a sec, just to highlight really the challenges associated with these different standards and different practices across the, the community. You know, since the 9-11 attacks, the government has made really a concerted effort to make sure that intelligence is shared, right? So you can work at agency X and you're accessing intelligence information that comes from agencies Y and Z. So you're, you're getting access to their sensitive data 
why, if you're going to go support a contract at agency Y or Z, should those agencies have to re-adjudicate your clearance or, or ask that different investigative steps be done all over again? You're already accessing their, their data holdings. So there's really no need to go through this process just so you can then go sit on site at agency X or Z and access their systems. Um, it's, these really provide just du- duplicative processes that don't add anything to security. And that's Larry Hanauer, the Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. We're also speaking with Greg Torres, the Director of Personnel Security at Booz Allen Hamilton. We're going to take a short break, but we'll pick up the conversation when we come back. I'm Justin Doubleday, and you're listening to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. With the broadest range of breakthrough technology solutions, Microsoft Azure for Government is the choice for classified missions. Built for government agencies and their partners, unlock insights, build new capabilities, and empower collaboration in secret and top-secret environments. Microsoft Azure is built for national security missions, combining cloud-native capability with classified networks, hybrid and multi-cloud, to create a developer-friendly platform that is ready anywhere and secure everywhere. Visit MicrosoftFederal.com. That's MicrosoftFederal.com. Welcome back to Inside the IC on Federal News Network. I'm Justin Doubleday, and I'm speaking with Larry Hanauer, the Vice President for Policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance, and Greg Torres, the Director of Personnel Security at Booz Allen Hamilton. We're discussing new recommendations for how the government can make it easier to move highly cleared folks between jobs. You highlighted some good questions, kind of a, a call out for some agencies to ask themselves in, in this report as well. Uh, you know, Greg, can you kind of talk about some specific examples of where one agency does something completely different than another just for, for no particular reason that you're seeing, especially in your seat as a personnel security director and at a pretty large contractor? Sure. I, I think we'll go back to that nomination po- process. You know, every I see uh, agency, every DOD component requires us to submit an SCI nomination package to request access to SCI. But when you look at the many tens of thousands of these requests that are made where the subject has already been determined to be SCI eligible without exception, they can't be deciding if they're eligible because that decision's already been made, to Larry's point. Some of the rationale that has been given to us is that they need to make sure that the person has a need to know. Well, that is an absolute requirement, so that makes sense. But remember, We've already signed a legal contract with the government to provide personnel to perform specific work where the government requires our personnel to be cleared at a certain level. And by and large, our program managers work hand in hand with the government program representatives to alert them of incoming personnel. So why do we need to provide the government with a request for each individual to justify their need for access when the government has already signed a contract that requires us to provide personnel that same access? It sort of doesn't make sense. But if you look a little bit more specifically and you talk maybe about DOD and each one of their components, I think what you'll find is that for each nomination, there's also different forms, different amounts of documents from no documents that create a five minute nomination process to five or more documents that could take days uh, for us to produce going back and forth with the subject and then weeks for them to approve it, all to gain access to the same level of classified information that they already have access to. 
Some DoD components require us to use multiple IT systems and perform these functions, and some do not. Some can produce an, an approval and in-dock in less than two weeks, while others take five weeks. So we're not suggesting which component is better. Only the DoD should really examine these practices and consider unifying best practices where it makes sense. And in the IC, some agencies can take weeks to authorize SCI access for personnel who are already uh, already have SCI eligibility, while some can do it in one to three days. And again, we're not suggesting what the solution is, only that some do it faster and likely more efficient than others. And those efficiencies are the things that should be shareable and could really uh, improve performance. And in the end, this is all about allowing us to get our personnel on the government's mission faster. Got it. And 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 Greg, the polygraph requirements are particularly interesting to me. You know, NGA seems to have done something uh, really well with, with their ability to actually just have people start working while they wait for their polygraph, while others do not allow that. And it takes weeks and sometimes months to uh, get them get them on on contract or, or on the work. Uh, can you kind of describe you know, the origins of that issue, what NGA has done well, and how, how other agencies might be able to replicate that? Sure. I'll just say, you know, each agency has different rules and different performance outcomes, uh, and they all in, uh, impact our talent pool and our speed to get people on mission. Uh, you sort of alluded to this here. You know, for example, one IC agency will allow personnel who already have TSSCI eligibility to onboard prior to the completion of the CI poly. We think this is a risk management approach, which we think is the right approach, given the myriad tools that these agencies now have to mitigate any perceived risk. If you if you think about it, years ago, they didn't have tools like continuous evaluation or user activity monitoring and a host of other tools, but they do now. But at other agencies, a person who's currently sitting in one IC or DOD SCIF and needs to move to another, needs to leave their current SCIF and sit outside until the polygraph is complete. For some agencies, that's only 30 to 60 days. Not too bad, but for others, it could take nine to 18 months. Again, we're certainly not suggesting there isn't utility in the polygraph program because we believe there is. We're only suggesting that it would likely be a valuable exercise from an oversight perspective to examine the practices. It's also important to note that these varying performance and timeline outcomes also drive decisions on who to hire. If the contract calls, for example, for someone with a full scope poly, and that they'd be available in 30 to 60 days, but the agency's not capable of doing a poly in 30 to 60 days, that means industry has to choose only from the pool of candidates who already have that full scope poly. This means we're just shuffling the deck chairs, right? Moving someone from one government mission to another, making a hole somewhere else. And we usually need to pay a premium for that employee to leave their current job. We think that one of the challenges for these agencies is they do not have a timeliness mandate on performance. They can take as long as they want to take to perform a polygraph. What that means is it's likely harder for them to justify additional polygraph resources if they can't demonstrate a true requirement in policy. Like, for example, if the policy was 30 days, they would be able to identify how many people they needed to meet that requirement and potentially get funding for it. So I think there's a lot for the IC to look at, but they can take a lesson from other agencies that are using a risk mitigation approach rather than risk avoidance approach. You know, that seems like a really interesting point that you highlighted in there. There's a limited pool of people, maybe even a shrinking pool of people as people retire who have these requirements all, all ready to go <clears throat> that I guess industry yourself, 
you know, you're kind of competing over and, and that, that drives salaries up, that drives costs up. It's good for those people probably, but for, for kind of, you know, the broader government mission and, and, and industry, uh, it, it's probably not great. What's, what's the effect of that? How, how do you kind of, are you really competing for, for folks who come in with this package all ready to go um, with, with your counterparts in industry? And, and what's been the net effect from the talent management side? Yeah, so I will say talent management uh, is is a function that that's outside of my my uh, my sphere. But I can tell you from a security clearance standpoint, uh, we can see where these people are coming from, and uh, the the numbers are in the tens of thousands every year that we have a requirement to fill a vacancy, uh, and we have to get those resources somewhere. And if we can't get people what we call pipeline coming out of college or if we can't take somebody who's an expert from another company that may not be cleared or somebody coming out of the military, for example, and we're limited to just a small group of people that have everything that they need to have and have it today, that has to have an impact on the choices that are made by any particular company. And you know, I've seen things in the intelligence community that speak to they want to get more diversity in all its definitions into the intelligence community well, if you keep moving the same people around from place to place, you're not going to be as, as successful as you as you could be. And there are lots of other restrictions. And I think one that if you if you don't mind, I'd like to sort of add here is some of it for us is also access to certain systems in the Department of Defense. We can access their system of record and know the eligibility, the polygraph status and the full eligibility of an individual. But for some reason, many of the intelligence community agencies will not let industry, by and large, have access to their, it's not their system of record, but scattered castles, which is a repository in the intelligence community where we can see uh, the full level of someone's clearance. And if we have a requirement to put somebody on contract uh, that is ready to go at agency X that requires a full scope poly and a certain level of clearance with a certain date of investigation, but because of the level of access that we've been granted, we can't see the polygraph and we can't see the exception. It happens quite often that we'll make somebody a job offer, we'll propose them to the government, and days or weeks later, they'll say, oh, sorry, the person is an exception or their polygraph is out of scope. And then we have to start the process all over again, leaving that mission vacant and hopefully not having to terminate somebody that we just hired because we couldn't see that information. So again, it's not clear to us why that happens. We know the security executive agent is seems to be supportive of us having the level of access that is appropriate. So we hope that we can make some progress with that as well. All right, Larry, you talked about it in the beginning when you ran down the recommendations, but the streamlining tier five adjudications to the highest level possible to kind of improve that mobility, the, the SCI level, not just top secret at the start when you bring someone in. Can you talk a little bit more about why that doesn't happen today Right. I mean, the, the approach now is that agencies will adjudicate a person's clearance to the level that's been requested. So if you're being put on a contract or offered a job that requires you to have a top secret collateral clearance, then the government will adjudicate you for a top secret clearance. Um, and that's it. Um, SCI access as, as well as other accesses are granted on a need to know basis. So if you're brought on board and you don't need to know SCI level uh, information um, when you're hired, they won't adjudicate you for SCI access. But if you later on need that SCI access for, let's say, a new contract or, or a new job, and, and that's quite common, 
um, then uh, then you got to start from scratch and get your clearance adjudicated all over again, even though the adjudicative standards, as I mentioned, are, are virtually the same for collateral top secret and for SCI. So what that means is that if a firm has to wait for an individual to go through the adjudicative process again and have their, their accesses re-adjudicated so they can be given SCI, that just creates a delay. Now, we're not recommending that people be given access to sensitive information that they don't have a need to know. What we're recommending is just that the adjudication for both collateral top secret and SCI access be done at the same time so that if later on a person has a need to access SCI information for a contract, then they've already been adjudicated to have that access. So it's really uh, getting getting two approvals at the same time rather than have to go back a second time and and do it all over again because that's just the, the, that just creates delays that makes it hard to complete the mission. Yeah, it seems like another area, quick win maybe for agencies to speed up this process a, a little bit there. In, exactly. in general, do these recommendations require, any of them require congressional action or is this by and large all stuff the executive branch could do today? Yeah, all of the recommendations that we make in this paper are things that that the executive branch could implement by uh, just changing existing policies. Um, they really uh, they don't require congressional um, action. They really have no financial funding implications. So so all of them can be implemented without additional resources. In fact, what we're saying is that is that some of these recommendations would actually save resources because it would make the processes more efficient. So it would it would enable agencies to conserve both funding and human resources to undertake other tasks and make the overall clearance process more efficient. And again, that's Larry Hanauer, the vice president for policy at the Intelligence and National Security Alliance. You also heard from Greg Torres, the director of personnel security at Booz Allen Hamilton. We spoke about INSA's latest recommendations on improving security clearance mobility. In the next show, I'll continue the conversation with Larry to discuss how the government could improve how it recruits and clears people with foreign ties. It's a big issue right now in the national security community, especially as defense and intelligence agencies try to recruit individuals with technology, foreign language, and other crucial skills. So stay tuned. And thanks again for joining today's show. We'll see you next time. Thanks for listening to Inside the IC, sponsored by Microsoft Federal. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime in your podcast feed. Search for Inside the IC on Podcast One, iTunes, or wherever you get your shows.